Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Artificial intelligence, facial recognition, lightning-fast networks. The pace of technological change is dizzying. So how are lawmakers and the world's leading companies keeping up? Tune into Politico's podcast, Global Translations, to hear from the CEOs of Citi's Global Consumer Bank and Google Cloud in a special branded episode from Citi. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. This week on the Nerdcast, a post-debate lightning round. We've broken down some of the moments from the debate. Now we're going to get a, a few of our crack political staff together to talk about what they think after watching the two nights, what candidates did well for themselves, what to watch for going forward. Plus, we're going to talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve. This is the Nerdcast, right? We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve cutting rates for the first time since the financial crisis. It's a really important economic issue. We're going to talk about exactly why with one of Politico's biggest experts on the subject. As always, we're taping this on a Thursday. Today, that's August 1st. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome in our guests. First up, national political reporter Elena Schneider joins us. Hello, Elena. Hey, Scott. And Politico's senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian, back with us this week. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for being here. So we've been through two more Democratic presidential debates this week, second round of debates for, for all the Democratic hopefuls. And quick lightning round. Who do you think came out on top and why? Was there a clear winner, night one, night two, from this week? Elena, we'll start with you. Scott, I'm going to ignore your question and just simply say that in a 20-car pileup, <laughs> there are no winners. <laughs> and um, look, I think that there were clear winners that came out of the first debate. There were clear exchanges that gave both Kamala Harris and Julian Castro um, either a polling bump or a fundraising bump. And it, it felt like in this second round that it was a lot more muddled, that there was a lot more clashes. There was a lot of sort of candidate on candidate action. And there wasn't necessarily any sort of like clear one off winner, but there were certainly people who were able to move the ball for themselves. And so one of those that comes to mind is Cory Booker, somebody who wasn't maybe able to to have some standout moments in the first round of the debate, but was really able to prosecute the case of a Joe Biden nomination and in particular went after him on criminal justice, something that uh, Cory Booker has gestured and hinted at for a long time. And we actually got to see it and he was able to deliver it and land it in a way that was effective and and walked away with some some sort of viral moments. Charlie? I don't disagree with anything uh, Elena said, although I, I guess I would say if I was pressed, the first night Elizabeth Warren was a winner to me to some extent, in part because uh, I think, again, she continued uh, her dominance at the debate level and showed her real skill there. I think uh, she didn't fade in the second half the way she did before. To me, the, the big question about Elizabeth Warren is many Democratic voters have to be able to envision her taking down Donald Trump in a one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, I always look at it this way, that there is you have to be able to be envisioned by Democrats in a cage, steel cage with Donald Trump, this feral savage beast on the debate stage, and can you go up against him? To me, Kamala Harris 
met that threshold mm. by taking down Biden in the exact precise way she did it in the first debate. And f- so for Warren, she almost has to show that. And I feel like she's getting closer and closer to that. She was fierce. She was passionate. She was articulate. More, most important, she was authentic. She was commanding. All of those things, I think, served her really well. Ultimately, though, I think she has to go through Bernie Sanders, not around Bernie Sanders, to get to where she needs to be. And until she really takes on Sanders head-to-head, I, I, I think there's a way, ways to go. In the second debate, to me, more of a muddle. Uh, I think Biden was a winner only because it was a moral victory. Like it, it's sort of a victory with an asterisk, and it's uh, a victory only because he didn't get crushed. I think he sort of righted the ship. He stabilized his campaign because remember, all his donors were completely panicking after that first debate. All those questions that the press have had, his supporters, his donors have had uh, about his advanced age, his ability to cut it on the campaign trail, all of those. Uh, came to the surface after that debacle where uh, Harris just really, uh, you know, crushed him. And I think he did what he needed to do, which is he took on a huge, he took on seven of the nine candidates last night, came after Joe Biden, uh, attacking him. And while I don't think he exactly excelled, I think he didn't collapse. He held his own. He moved on to September. There's no reason to think that his position as front runner has been greatly diminished after that. And so for that reason, and for that reason only, and I realize that's a low bar, but for that reason, I think in some ways it was a victory for uh, Joe Biden. That kind of speaks to what you're talking about, Elena, right? That, I mean, with 10 people kind of all trying to get in their 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 comments, their specific, it, 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 it was less of a single event than a kind of collection of of moments, a couple candidates here, a couple more here, three there. And everyone kind of everyone was able to do something that they that they set out to do, right? I mean, even Andrew Yang, who I think, as we, as we mentioned in the last time, had to, I think, probably make up the fact that his mic was cut to, to make up for the fact that he didn't really seem to know what he was doing up there on, on the stage on, on June, made a lot of like interesting points and cut into the conversation and got his message out this time around. Yeah, everyone got bites at the apple this go around. And I think all of them really needed that. I mean, as we all know, the the criteria has been increased for the next round of debates. And so all a lot of these people came in with, with some of these sort of pre-cooked zingers that they were hoping were going to maybe land a little bit better. And I think of Kirsten Gillibrand, somebody who started off in that debate with a lot of pretty good answers, being able to take issues. I'm thinking immigration, where she sort of was able to elevate the conversation around, you know, sort of this back and forth, sort of brought it back to we really need to focus on Republicans here. That being said, though, she she had a moment where she was really going to try and execute the case against um, Joe Biden the same way that Kamala Harris did. But she had telegraphed to everyone um, the weekend before in Iowa that she was maybe going to go after him on child care and on women working outside of the home, and he was then ready for it. And so she was sort of bungled her own punch at him. And so even though she did have some some moments, because she is one of those people who's at risk for not being in this third debate, she maybe wasn't able to land it in the same way that some other folks like maybe Julian Castro or Cory Booker were maybe better at able to sort of use him as, as their own foil. Yeah, I thought that was a huge bungled moment. The I thought that was a terrible moment for Jill Brand. She's been so good on stage. Uh, I think uh, she's been sharp in, in both debates, but that was just so phony and 
inauthentic and you could see it coming. I thought it was kind of beneath her. And also, like, is that really what Democrats need to hear? Is that really get you closer to uh, to defeating Donald Trump, having a discussion about whether or not Joe Biden has antediluvian views on the role of women in the workplace? I mean, come on, like a 1980 clip. That's like 40 years ago. I mean, it's just, it was, it seemed desperate and beneath her. Right. But at the same time, Kamala Harris did the exact same thing with his positions on, on busing. So, I mean, I, I think that the, the mistake that Gillibrand made was making it clear that she was going to do it. And I think when you catch somebody by surprise, you catch them off, off base or unable to sort of maybe explain their positions, that is when you can maybe have some success, you know, going after people's records in the same way that, say, even Tulsi Gabbard, who nobody sort of expected her to, to, to pull out the Kamala Harris burn book, and she did, <laughs> and she used all of Kamala's sort of, you know, in the minds of some, you know, particularly those progressives, unsavory, um, you know, record around her time as attorney general and really went after her. And Kamala didn't in a really robust way sort of a get at addressing some of that. And she did a little bit more, you know, in, in some of the interviews after the debate. But she was taken by surprise at that. And I think that when you can catch candidates sort of, you know, fr- from an angle or fr- on a subject that they maybe aren't totally expecting it, you can have have some, you know, have a moment there. Obviously, Kamala Harris was able to do it. I don't know if Tulsi Gabbard will see a bump from this. Um, so some may have more success than others, but clearly Gillibrand wasn't able to pull that off. I'm curious, do you guys both think Harris had a bad debate? Because I've seen a lot of commentary that she was a big loser. She had a terrible night. Like, I agree with you. I, I, I think she, she, you know, she stumbled at some points and uh, wasn't great on her feet at points, but I didn't think she had a terrible debate at all. I thought, I thought she was fine. I yeah, wouldn't I say she was a winner, but... There's yeah, some, some I didn't harsh th- criticism of her performance. I didn't think she was bad. I think it was she was she the expectations for her were a little bit different. So she came into the first debate and and sort of everyone started out on the same playing field and she went after Joe Biden in a way that was so effective, so dominant, so that when she comes into the second debate, the expectations I think around her were just a little bit higher. Unlike Joe Biden, which had, you know, were sort of down in the basement, Kamala maybe had a, a more that needed to get done or or sort of have one of those moments again that sort of felt like she was able to, you know, like you said, prosecute that case. I don't think she was totally lacking in that at all, but I maybe the, just the, the, the bar was set a little bit higher for her. And speaking of moments and, and Kamala Harris, I think it's, um, I don't know if you guys noticed this. The, so to me, the, the Gabbard takedown was very effective by Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, I thought it was well-planned and uh, surprised. It, it did exactly what Gabbard needed to do. It caught Harris by surprise. It got some splash for Tulsi Gabbard. What was fascinating to me, though, was the tw- Twitter uh, hashtag that was generated from that moment. I don't know if you saw it. Kamala Harris destroyed. Yeah. What was fascinating about that was less that it was organic, but the idea that there was lots of evidence that this hashtag that suddenly started trending after the Gabbard takedown uh, was emanating from uh, Russian uh, disinformation sources like whether whether it's wow. you know like uh sputnik or rt rt or sputnik news all those places so there was lots of evidence that that was where it was coming from which again to me is is interesting because it shows so since the beginning of this campaign we see a lot of disinformation foreign state disinformation being directed at kamala harris that's very interesting well, and, and, and maybe not all that surprising given that she is seen as somebody who would be the most effective candidate going up against Donald Trump. I mean, there's nothing like drawing fire to know that you're you're the one that, that people think is the biggest threat. Layered on top of that, though, is that she's a woman of color. And I think that that's going to probably draw more attacks and, and uh, these sorts of 
really dark corners of the internet are going to come out for those kinds of candidates more than a white guy. Mm, that's a really good point. All right. Thank you both for, for stepping aside to do our final analysis of the July debates. We're going to get the gang back together in September for the for the next round of Democratic uh, showdowns, but we'll, we'll have a lot more podcasts between now and then where we can talk about other things as well. Charlie, thank you for being here. Scott, thank you for having me. Uh, Elena, thank you as well. Thanks, Scott. We're going to jump into our second segment in a second, but first, Nerdcast will be right back after this short message. Worldly from Vox is your guide to news from all around the world. Every Thursday, senior writer Zach Beecham, senior foreign editor Jennifer Williams, and defense writer Alex Ward give you the history and context you need to make sense of global stories. If you want to understand news out of Iran, Syria, North Korea, Russia, China, Brazil, Worldly is the podcast for you. And they always save a segment of the podcast for bright, fresh international stories, a fruit heist in Spain, or Iceland's quest to build a better soccer team. Subscribe to Worldly from Vox on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Welcome back, listeners. Next up, a divided Federal Reserve is cutting interest rates for the first time in more than a decade. We're going to talk through what that means and why it matters. And to do that, we've got Politico Financial Services reporter Victoria Guida here to help us understand. Victoria, welcome to your first ever appearance on the Nerdcast. Thanks. I'm excited. We're excited, too. So uh, you you wrote uh, in, in a story published this week that, uh, you know, divided Federal Reserve on Wednesday, cutting interest rates for the first time in more than 10 years. First, I, I think take us at the most basic level. Like, What does it mean when the Federal Reserve raises or in this case lowers interest rates. Yeah. So this is this is sort of the main job of the Fed, which is um, it controls borrowing rates between banks um, or it affects borrowing rates between banks. And what that means is the interest rate that banks charge to each other for money affects the rates that banks then charge everybody else for money. So it affects interest rates throughout the economy, what you might pay if you're, you know, buying a car you have a mortgage, whatever. So what the Fed does affects all of those types of rates. Got it. So big, big effects. So, I mean, and, and that splashes all the way down through pretty much every everything having to do with money exactly. in the U.S. So then what, why now, the first time in, in so long that, that the Fed is dialing back interest rates? Right. So um, for a long time, actually, uh, the Fed had kept interest rates near zero after the financial crisis because um, you want to keep rates low if the economy is weak to help the economy. And then... um, Encourages people to... To, to, to make more money available for borrowing, basically. Exactly, okay. exactly. It encourages lending, it encourages economic activity because, you know, in a recession, people can sort of freak out, want to hoard money. Banks don't want to lend because they're worried about what might happen. And so it's the, it's the Fed's job and theoretically Congress's job to sort of encourage people to go out and, and spend, lend, and get the economy moving again. So... In the last few years, the Fed had been raising interest rates because they felt that the economy was strong enough to handle it and they didn't need to be helping the economy so much. But more recently, the economy has been showing signs of slowing down a bit. It's still pretty solid. You know, growth last year was almost 3%, which is decent uh, for an economy the size of the U.S. Um, But it's starting to slow a little bit. And... One of the big things that the Fed has been pointing to is the the trade wars that 
Trump has been waging. That has sort of freaked out businesses throughout the world. They don't necessarily know where to invest their money because uh, they don't know where tariffs might show up next. And so that sort of put a dent in business investment. Um, and, and manufacturing is also starting to sort of slow down around the world. And so all of that is sort of you know, worrying the Fed a little bit, and they want to make sure that that growth doesn't slow down too They're much. trying to fill in that dent, basically, mm-hmm. using the, the tool that a central bank has. Mm-hmm. Can we extrapolate anything... From this around, I mean, we we had we had Ben White on Nerdcast just a week ago, a lot of podcasts ago, but just a week ago. But and 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 he and he was talking about kind of the the uh, the concern among some Trump advisors that as the president is is heading into reelection, that the economy is is showing signs of 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 slowing down, and kind of ending this growth cycle we've been on for for about ten years. I mean, is this is this part of that that concern? Basically, yes, no, it definitely is. And I mean, the real question, I guess, for the rest of us is, you know, what does this actually mean for the for the fundamentals of the U.S. economy? Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is, you know, consumer spending is actually still really strong. You know, there, there are a lot of, of data points that indicate that the U.S., you know, otherwise, other than sort of uh, other economies outside of the U.S. slowing down, tr- other than trade tensions, um, the U.S. economy is doing all right. And so uh, the question is really whether some of those other factors will start to dent the domestic economy more than they already are. And those do seem to be the biggest risk factors. The other really wonky reason why the Fed also wanted to cut rates is because um, they want inflation to be at 2%. That's their target. And so they want, you know, basically prices to go up a certain level. And inflation is a little bit below where they want it to be. Hmm. And so they want to encourage inflation to go up a little more. Got it. So now looking down the road, I mean, next few weeks, months throughout this year, what this seems like a, a really big data point, but not like a, a determinative one, right, about about the direction uh, the economy is going and how things, what, what else should we look out for over over the next little while that can kind of help color in this this picture a little bit more about the the state of things you know i i haven't really seen what the fallout of this is yet but president trump i think just said that more tariffs are coming on china and so yeah that was just like 45 minutes ago right right exactly <laughs> um and so that's something that sort of adds to the uncertainty and and so and that's in some ways the least predictable element of all this, of right? Of all of this, exactly. And so, um, you know, you, you mentioned the president's re-election prospects, and it's kind of interesting because a lo- so much of this is really under his control, right? Because a lot of the uncertainty comes from the fact that he is trying to, you know, have use all of these pressure tactics on our trading partners to get them to, to come to the table, come to a deal. And so it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, as we get closer to the election, the president whether he decides to kind of tone it down a little bit to stop freaking out the economy so much. You know, there are some people who think he's playing like a 4D type of chess where he's adding uncertainty on purpose because he wants the Fed to cut rates. (laughs) And so he sort of, uh, you know, achieved his goal. I don't know that I really buy that, but uh, it is sort of an interesting perspective, which is basically like there's sort of this economic downside to his trade policies and the Fed sort of has no little choice but to clean up after it if that makes sense right yeah well this is really interesting i think it's it's always good when we can uh, i mean it's certainly helpful for me to be able to understand this a little bit more so i i, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to walk us through your story walk us through the developments and and figure out what to make of all this yeah thanks for having me 
And as always, a big thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer this week is Jenny Ament. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.